Welcome to Winning with Connections, the WWC podcast. Today I have Randy Lang, the CEO and managing partner of Firebird AST. Firebird is a firm that we are starting to do lots of business with, and you'll see why, because Randy and his whole team are just so good at what they do, so energetic, so clearly moral and focused on mission. Randy actually, and I didn't know this until the podcast, started as a broadcaster. So the idea of people coming from different perspectives, from different backgrounds into GovCon is one of the things that we talk about here. And one of the other things that I think is going to be really important to our listeners is we talk about how to break into a new market. In their case, SOCOM, um, and we, we, we talk a little bit about Sophic, the industry conference that I got to meet him for the first time in person, at, but how to break into that new market or any new market within the government space or how to break into the government space as a whole. So I hope you enjoy our talk with Randy Lang. So welcome, Randy. I am so excited to have you. We, we've been trying to do business together for a little while now on a couple of different efforts, particularly in SOCOM. So I want to talk a little bit about that. But first, I really want to understand kind of your background and the background of Firebird. Thanks, Lauren. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to be with you and chat today. So I'll start initially a little bit about me. I think that might set the story up a little bit better. The first job I had out of college was a sports broadcaster, which everyone finds kind of interesting. Small market. I was in a couple small markets in Oregon. And oftentimes people say, wow, how did you get from being a sports broadcaster to government contracting? It just doesn't make sense. But you know, most of the paths of people in our business, I think, are all very circuitous. And I ended up leaving sports casting and heading to D.C. in the late 90s to go to graduate school at American University and got my master's in national security and public policy, which led me initially to work in government intelligence at Langley, which is also a big contrast from something very public like broadcasting to mm -hmm. intelligence, which is sort of clandestine information gathering as, as we understand it. But interestingly enough, those two career stops were formative for me in terms of learning about gathering information, telling a story, connecting with an audience, analyzing information, working under deadlines. All those things were relevant, certainly in the job that I have today. And moving from there, that's how I originally got into government contract and decided the pace of government was a little slow for me and went over to Booz Allen, got recruited there in the early aughts when they were gobbling up a lot of people with security clearances. So that's kind of where I learned consulting, as we call it, or professional services, as it's commonly referred to. Learned about business process reengineering, doing a range of IT consulting, mission support services. These are all the terms we use today. Mm -hmm. I was there. And then I got recruited from there by a client who retired, who went over to Deloitte when they were just starting their federal practice in the early days. They maybe had a, a hundred or so consultants when they decided to build it. Now they've become a juggernaut. So help them build that practice. And what I learned from those two big companies was I really didn't enjoy big companies all that much. <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> I think the combination of the, the politics some of the corporate BS, I just didn't have a lot of patience for it, but I learned that I could navigate it, which I think was important, but I also realized I didn't like it. Yep. So from there, I endeavored on a couple of opportunities with smaller firms, and I started getting into executive leadership positions, business strategy, 
kind of overseeing business development. So the part, the growth sides of the business and what's the strategy and plan. And I got exposed to different business owners, which was just as valuable. I saw the way people did things. And some people I very much did not like the way they did it. And okay. some people I very much did like the way they did it. And so I was all the time, I was sort of taking notes mentally and writing things out. What do I like? What do I not like? How would I run a business? And those things all sort of prepared me for the moment that I sort of connected with an old friend who had started Firebird and a guy by the name of Bruce McNair. We were old friends from Booz Allen and he had started Firebird. It was extremely small at the time. It was about 10 people. And that was a company he founded in 2011. And then we connected, reconnected in terms of talking serious about working together as partners in, boy, it's 2022. I want to say 2015. Mm-hmm. And so we sat down and we, as all business partnerships are over food and alcohol and the Mosaic District, we sat down over drinks and dinner and we sort of hammered out a plan. At the time, it was a pretty big risk for me because the company was very small. I knew I was going to have to significantly cut back my own compensation to do it. But I really wanted the opportunity to work with someone that I trusted and together try to build something. And that was finally the time where it was time to sort of say, okay, let's do this. Let's take all this experience and now let's apply it and come up with a business thesis and see if we can make it work. Funny because it's the exact opposite of what I did. I knew nothing about (laughs) GovCon when we started the company. So you had at least the benefit of of lots of kind of experience in watching. I actually really like doing that where it's, I watch the people I don't like and I watch the people Mm -hmm. I like and I take from you know, the best bosses I had and the worst bosses I had to be a leader and, and, you know, the best firms out there and, and some of the really bad firms out there to say, okay, what are, what's our values? What, you know, what are our values? What are our, our distinguishers? What do we want to, to borrow from these firms? What do we not want to borrow from these firms? How do we distinguish ourselves from all the rest of them? So it's, it's nice that you had that from internal to the firm, as opposed to just from kind of seeing it from the outside. Yeah, I think for me, that's the way I learned. And that was a very helpful path for me. I'm not a natural entrepreneur. I wish I could say that I was. Right. And starting a government contracting firm is fraught with lots of compliance, as you know, lots of startup issues. Mm -hmm. And for a long while, I just kept having good opportunities at really established firms. So I hadn't really thought about it. But then as things went along, I thought, you know what, I can do this. And right. I don't need to ask a person with more gray hair in the corner office how to do this anymore. I know how to do this. Right. And so it kind of was the right mix of Bruce needing someone like me who comes with much more of a business background. He's more of an Intel analyst and right. me needing kind of a platform that had already sort of at least been started and then together saying, OK, now it's time to really take this thing. We've got that. We've got the basics here. Now we need to we need to grow it. We need to professionalize it. We need to turn it into something that's durable and can last. So, yep. so yeah, it was, it, everything, so the stars kind of aligned in the right way. There are different cut points to firms' trajectories. And I, I, I find that 10-person cut point, 10, 15-person, oh, well, the first one is getting your first contract, right? And I, I, we get a yes. whole lot of questions about how to get your first contract. And we've had lots of podcasts about, you know, aligning yourself as a subcontractor and all that kind of stuff. But that next cut point is Again, is that 10 to 15 mm-hmm. FTEs where you're working instead of in the business, you're working on the business, you bring in kind of expertise or and really start getting more strategic in your efforts as opposed to just give me any work possible to, to like yes. keep surviving in this business, as it were. So, you know, 
And then you've got different cut points from there. So you guys have done very well for yourselves over, you know, the last seven, eight years. And you're, we'll, we'll talk about kind of building in new markets, but you first were really in the in- Intel space, right? Yeah. So we started in kind of the counter IED space, the old Jido, which became Jido, right. which is now part of Ditra for those out there that are wonky and, and know the legacy there. But really it was back in those days, it was to defeat the device overseas for devices that were blowing up our troops. Let's defeat the money flow behind it. Let's mm-hmm. attack the resources. Let's do counter threat financing. And so that kind of is the DNA and the early evolution of the company. We still do that work today for that same customer. But what was interesting is what we started to have sort of an adjacent pivot over in the civilian space around asset forfeiture, fraud, financial investigations, anti-money laundering, which came when we won our Secret Service contract in 2015 as our was our first prime contract. So it was significant on multiple levels. But it also started very, very small. And a lot of those skills I had learned at Booz and Deloitte about land and expand, get the beachhead, go and do good work. Don't try to oversell. Go and put the right people in, perform, and growth will happen. Do the right things and outcomes, the good outcomes will come. And sure enough, that's what happened. But quick rabbit hole is there's a story about people there. There was one person who we had been talking with about running this program. And we had not done a good job in the initial conversations with her. We had created concerns with her about how viable we were. We were a real company. So literally, I think it was the second week or so when I got her name, I called her and I spent a long time on the phone with her. And I almost, Lauren, I'm telling you, I basically begged her to give us a shot. Yep. Come in and try. If you think I'm full of full of crap, you can quit in two months and never talk to me again. Come in. Help me build this thing. I promise we'll make you whole finance. We'll make it all work. She has turned into, she's now my director of law enforcement programs. Her name (laughs) is Marie Fulop. I want to announce her name because she's fantastic. A force of nature. She's grown the contract. She has such credibility with our customers. She runs our entire law enforcement practice. But the key there was I knew she was the right person. I needed to do whatever it took to convince her just to give me a shot if she would come in and bring her talent and she's been fantastic. And now she's one of the biggest evangelists for the company. And I just so value her as a person, as a professional. It's it's incredible. I think that goes to the hire the right people, get them on the bus, right? The the old adage of get the right people on the bus, figure out their seats later. But you know, when the right person is the right person and, and getting also getting that culture, right. Making her an evangelist for the company is, is critical when they're good and they love the company, they're the best BD people, even the ones on contract, even the most junior people on contract, if you do that right, can be the ones that grow, you know, that beachhead from two or three people to 20 or 30 people. And so that that I think is one of the the take homes from that that a lot of small businesses can learn from is, yes, the Deloitte and Booz model of kind of land and grow, but you can't do that. Number one, if you're obnoxious about trying to grow. Correct. Uh, I definitely heard it. And, and sometimes the bigs are, and that's one of the complaints we hear about bigs that we don't hear about our staff is usually we turn around and go, yeah, we can do that within what you've already paid for. Mm-hmm. Because if we're not putting our hand out all the time, when we do need to put our hand out, they're willing to, to say, yep, we're going to fund more. 
And when they've got other requirements, they're thinking of us because we're not asking for it. So it's it, it's a little kind of counterintuitive, but it, it works better that way. But it's also just get the right people, get good people in there. And then they know, hey, we can count on Firebird for everything that we need to do. Yeah. And we we there were some battles with the sub that's a large company i'll protect the innocent here they've been previously the prime and so they kind of wanted to run it from behind and so we kind of had to say that's not going to work and you know they said yes 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 but it took a while to for them to understand that we meant it you know i'll I'll just leave it there without the details but point is we had to slowly assert ourselves take over and then the client even had to be brought along at first like well we kind of like the way it works but over time they realized wow firebird is extremely responsive they're bringing fantastic people they're extremely agile. They really are leaning forward into the mission. It's over time, they suddenly like, wow, well, no, actually, I really want Firebird running this thing. And I want them, you know, advising me on where we're going. I want them being my partner. And so that took time as well and some some battles behind the scenes. And again, Marie did a fantastic job during that process. And so that credibility got built. It's boring. It's old fashioned. It got built day in, day out, week in, week out. It didn't get built overnight. And it wasn't tell me, it was show me. And we kept showing them over and over and over. And so it's kind of old school that way, but it but it's been an effective model for us. Yeah, no, that's very much the same. I think I think there are a lot of small businesses that kind of try to jump over that or kind of try to say, well, wait a second, I'm a small business. You just need to give me this because I'm a small business. <laughs> no, you gotta prove it. You gotta, you gotta be better than you know, the Deloitte's or the boozes only going back to your history, but any of the the bigs that are that are in this space, you've got to show some distinguisher or else they're just checking a box on small business. And you got to show why you're why you're different and better in a lot of respects. So. Absolutely. And just to, to put the fine bow on that story, 2019, we were nominated for the CCAF program of the year and we won. And I remember we so remember being up on stage with Marie, who had assisted the team come up, wasn't going to go up there because it was their award, not mine. And just giving her a big hug. And she was like, I can't believe I can't believe how far we've come on this one project. It was so difficult. And this is so great. Just validating it. And those are the moments in business, I think, where it's like this team success. And that's really what what motivates me and motivates our team. So it was exciting to go from this thing that was really floundering, frankly until it's become an award-winning program and something that's been a real cornerstone of our company. That's awesome. So we met you, I think we were, we ended up looking at kind of a flip from you on Oasis, but then started really talking about our entry into SOCOM, you know, our, our place at SOCOM and your desire to, to enter into SOCOM. So I got to meet you in person for the first time post-COVID Thank you very much at Suffolk, <laughs> which is the the SOCOM industry conference, and had some some really good conversations with you guys about what it looks like to get into such an insular space, right? And does it make sense? And how do you invest? Because you guys do have a a vehicle into SOCOM with Softcore Support SCS that what, 45 firms at this point, I think, have. Yes, yes. So it's it's one of these things where it was it, it really should be your entry point, but it is a difficult entry. Mm-hmm. So we talked a lot about, does it make sense to enter SOCOM? What do you have to do? And, you know, SOCOM is the, the example here just because of kind of where it is. 
But I think this makes sense for any firm as kind of an object lesson for getting into either the government space sum total or a new market. And so, you know, one of the things that we had talked a lot about is how do you distinguish yourself as a non-SOCOM firm Mm -hmm. in an insular place like SOCOM? So, you know, what are your thoughts about how you're investing uh, I don't know. This is this is probably dangerous territory if if anyone from SoCon. <laughs> so you know, be careful of of how you say it, I guess. But but yes. how do you figure out how to invest and whether to invest in a new market and when to to cut bait? As a fantastic, fantastic question, and something that and the whole what, what do you think about it? And I these this is one of the things I think about almost every day, on a run, uh, in the shower, driving to work. So. Winning the core support vehicle back in, boy, it's weird because there was a long protest. So now I'm going to date myself. I want to say we won it in 2020, but I'm sure someone out there will correct me. And then there was a long protest period, maybe a year. So that was a big deal. We won this big IDIQ at SOCOM where we had tangential support through the DITRA stuff, which is which is analytical support to the soft operators overseas. And we deploy people overseas there. So it wasn't that we didn't no SOCOM we did, but still it was a big deal to win the vehicle, which was a pretty comprehensive proposal process. So we proved we could do that. We could build a good team. But I'm not going to lie here on the podcast. It's been a difficult process to win work. It's Tampa in and of itself. It's off the DC radar. We know it's one of those other big government markets across the country like San Diego. It sits by itself. It's insular both in where it is in terms of the fact that SOCOM is there. Obviously, there's lots of back and forth between DC and Tampa. But nonetheless, it is a insider's insider market there. And as we think about where we're at, we've had some unsuccessful bids. We're finding out that the cost emphasis on cost is very high. So we're seeing bids being won at prices so far that we couldn't deliver at. Right. So what what does that mean? Right. And so we're in the process of figuring out what does that mean? Does that mean that people are winning work and then things are getting changed behind the scenes? We don't know in terms of in terms of modifications. Does it mean that people are investing and going in and willing to lose money? And that's certainly a viable strategy if someone wants to do it as a way to, quote unquote, buy work. So where we're at now is as we've kind of taken the first year in, we've seen probably eight to 10 task orders in a range of different services, a large exercise support, not a ton in the analytical realm, which is our expertise, but some very specialized type services. We've been sort of leaning into our teammates and saying, hey, we need to be out in front of things that we plan to bid. We need to have a deep understanding, not a cursory. Sometimes people will take a flyer and throw something out there and see if it sticks. We need a deep understanding of the requirements, of the price sensitivity, of the risks as we bid. So what we've what we've done is we've evolved our bid approach to be a, a wee bit, not a wee bit, a significantly smarter bid approach. And now that we have some data from the first few bids, we've now refined it and we've we've increased the thresholds for gate reviews in terms of which ones we're going after. We are working actively to try to work through some of our partners that have existing relationships to move work to it. 
So we're we're kind of in that we're actually in that process right now. And it, what'll be interesting is maybe to have a follow up conversation this in like a year. And it's yeah. been great to sit with you to sit with you at our party in the backyard in, in uh, Tampa in Muggy Tampa and talk about your journey and how you guys were able to win your first big contract there and lean on some of your experiences. But what we do know is having people who come from that world is critical. Having people who who know the actual buyers down there is critical. So we're obviously working those types of strategies concurrent and, and looking to make some additional investments there. But it is difficult. I'm not going to sit here and say it's not. It is extremely difficult to do that. And it's a chicken and egg. Do you do you do you pay someone who makes a pretty good salary before you have any work and just eat right. the cost. So there's all these different ways to think about how you quote unquote invest, which right. is what we're grappling with right now. So I want to unpackage that for the listeners. Yeah. Cause again, this sure. is, yes, it's, it's so calm. Right. And that's, this is, this is definitely something that SOCOM is kind of known for is being very insular. Although all the acquisition executive will tell you that's not true. It, it, it is really hard to break in at SOCOM because they're, the trust factor has to be there. Bluntly, because these are tip of the spear requirements and, yes. and there's a no fail mission here. So it's legit. It's not wrong that it's the, that the trust factor has to be high, but there's a broader lesson here. And I'm sure you hear it from firms that you talk to that are trying to break in where I, I hear a whole lot of people going, well, we, we see this RFP come out and we totally do that. <laughs> we have the ability to do mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, SES is a perfect example of somebody turning around and saying, look, we have the ability. We know that we've got past performance. We've got the expertise. We could be the best one at doing that. And it doesn't work because of all of the things that you just talked about, because of not knowing the peculiarities the customer and what they need, because RFPs are not very often written to really get into the nitty gritty of Mm -hmm. what the requirements are and how you need to price it and how you need to staff it, because you have to know that this one needs this one program manager who is absolutely critical to the functioning Mm -hmm. of this program, all of these different pieces where if you're going in and writing a great proposal, we tried this at SOCOM years ago, mm-hmm. right? I We we actually, it, funny enough, on UTEP, which is now the contract that we, that we hold, the first iteration of UTEP, we had, we bought in using a senior colonel mm-hmm. that had been a special forces operational colonel, you know, sitting in the, in the J3 where a little adjacent to where this sat. And he's like, I can write this. I know what this is. I got this. Mm-hmm. And we were bluntly, that proposal was absolutely useless. We should never have played on it. And we we had no business and we should not have won and we didn't win. Right. And the, the firms that actually knew what they were doing and were jockeying for a physician, we didn't know. We didn't even know who those firms were at that point. Right. So we hadn't right. done the homework. We hadn't been ready. So Fast forward for three, four years, we did the homework. We worked with the right firms. We partnered with the right people. We got into the space. We had proven ourselves within there. And then we were able to write knowing all of the pieces of the, you know, how the the pricing really worked and how to make sure 
we weren't losing money. We weren't buying in on that contract, how to make sure we knew what people needed to really be there, all of that kind of stuff. And so it's a story that I think matters within SOCOM, but it matters everywhere in the government. And it's something that I hear. And I'm sure, again, I'm sure you hear too, when you're talking to firms who are like, Hey, I'd really like to get into the government space that being able to do the work is not enough. Uh, Absolutely. And I think you nailed that. I think that's a great lesson for folks that are, whether they're breaking into a special market like that, or just generally into the government contracting market. If you're going to do that, there's, there's a series of typically, there's a series of chess moves on the board that you have to look at. It's to your point, go get some subcontract experience. So you become a known credible commodity to not just the customer, but some of the other companies that work in there. Because for example, you go in as a small, you work with another small or another company and suddenly either the small outgrows the size standard and there's a prime opportunity and they wanna flip behind you. And there's a great opportunity suddenly to get your first contract, but they're not gonna flip behind you as a sub unless they believe you can do it. So there's there's a number of different ways to do it, but trying to just uh, throw stuff against the wall in terms of proposals that every once in a while I hear a story, someone gets lucky, great, that does happen, but that's kind of like playing the lottery. And I don't think that's a smart or strategic way to spend bid and proposal resources, which are precious because those are both your time and your money. I don't think that's a smart way to try to do it. I think it's better to build up a little portfolio of subcontracts while you're eyeing opportunities that might be down the road a couple of years that you believe you can build that requisite past performance that will position you then to make a credible bid as a prime. Right. So, so you're absolutely right. I think it's a very, very important thing for people to think about who are trying to quote unquote, break into the market or a particular market. And it gets, we see this get played out over and over and over and over. Right. Right. No. And that's, so, you know, as we're looking with you guys at what to do at SOCOM, it is, You've got you built a phenomenal team, I will tell you, in kind of looking at the team you built, you built the the absolute right team for SCS. But even then, right, even with that, it's Mm -hmm. really hard to do. It's really hard to and it's and it's really hard to figure out those bad wins versus good wins as well. Right. We talk a lot in the firm about drive some of my BD folks absolutely batty when I say this, but when we lose something and we lose it over, you know, and we've done this before over $10,000 with a, you know, hundred million dollar contract, that's a killer. If we lose something that's a $5 million contract and we lose it over a million and a half dollars, that's a good loss. I'm good. Right. Yes, totally agree. Because you're like, okay, I, I bid it competitively. I bid what I could deliver it at. And you have to be able to let that stuff go. But to lose something over a rounding error, you know, it's just, yeah. you, you just want, <laughs> that's the stuff that for me gives me less hair than I already have and makes right. it grayer. It's just, <laughs> yeah, that's the stuff you just kick it around over and over and over. Like, how do we do that? How would, couldn't we just sharpen our pencil a little bit more on that one? Right. right. That, but that's really knowing the price to win and knowing the requirements and understanding your ability to deliver. Because what I refuse to do is bid on something, destroy our reputation because we flail and flounder. And then suddenly this years of building a a reputation of always being able to deliver goes down the drain. I mean, that to me is a worst case scenario. 
Well, and, and to me, you know, it's very hard to build that credibility, right? It takes years. It takes constant delivery. It takes over and over and over again, proving it. And it takes almost no time to lose it. And so, you know, being fastidious about that culture of delivery, that culture of credibility is really critical because if you one contract that goes wrong, man, that can kill your whole business, really. And so the, the those good losses are true. They're real good losses to be able to say, nope, I could not have delivered on that. We're, look, the bottom line, this business, and I joke with my team a lot, the, the wins and sort of positive adrenaline shots come in very infrequently in this business. And yeah. all of us who've been in long enough have realized that it's probably not a business you'd sign up for if you were eyes wide open, you know, when you were 22 years old. <laughs> but yes. the, the the losses and the, the, the moments where you're like, darn, this is frustrating. Those are much more frequent than like, yes, we did it. So you have to be able to make to make value out of those losses is you have to be able to learn something. Either you learn that I never could have bid at a price that I could have delivered at and someone else is going to deal with the consequences of their bid and that's their problem. Or I didn't understand it well enough. Or maybe it's even something went on the procurement that's that's not okay. Maybe there's a protest there. But the point is that you have to be able to look at that and say, what's my takeaway? And more importantly, not what's my takeaway. How do I incorporate that? How do I internalize that into my next bid? Whatever it is, how do how does that become, how does that inform what we do next so yep. we can bid more smartly, right? So yep. that's critical in this business if you're going to survive for even a short period of time. Yeah, it's that always learning kind of concept here is just because we do it every every day. I mean, and and we fail and I'm glad to fail. And I'm not glad to fail. Um, <laughs> but, it, you know, you you have to take those failures because there are going to be failures. But every failure hopefully drives more success in the long run. So, yeah, I mean, for sure. And, you know, again, coming back to how this we're, we're conscious of, I think, our audience generally, although it changes fairly frequently, are the small businesses emerging into this space as opposed to the medium-sized businesses or the kind of established small businesses that are playing effectively, that, first of all, that failure is consistent and, and typical. The margins are much lower. So, you know, think about whether or not you want to get into this business. Yes. Hindsight 2020, I still would have gotten into the business. I love what we do. I love the mission part of what we do, but it is not, you know, I, my, my older brother is a, a business guy or was before he retired, a, a traditional kind of fortune 50 mm-hmm. senior executive. And he turns to me all the time. He says, why aren't you doing this? Oh yeah, that doesn't work in, in GovCon. I'm not mm-hmm. allowed to. Right. Mm -hmm. And so all of the different things that you typically can do in a in a B2B kind of business or a B2C kind of business, you don't do in a B2G. You can't do in a B2G and and the margins look different and whatever. But, man, when the winds come and you're right infrequently and I, I will tell you the big win that we got, the first big win that we got with UTEP. I remember screaming, literally screaming out loud <laughs> when the contracting officer, luckily I knew her fairly well. Right. And she started laughing when I did it because it was really not professional, <laughs> but <laughs> screamed out loud. 
you know, hung up the phone with her, called the the team, and then sat down and went, wait, what now? Right. Like, and and I think maybe slept an hour that night and then got up and and started whiteboarding it. But those wins, when they come, are really awesome. But sometimes it takes, I don't know, we're really bad at celebrating the wins that we get. So, or I am really bad, I should say, at celebrating <laughs> the wins that we get. And I've tried to be better at doing that with the team because it is really, really important because they don't happen that often. They're big. You know, some of the smaller ones are are great and they they kind of sustain you. But there is a lot of failure before the success. And I think that's really important for the small businesses that are that are emerging into this space need to hear for sure. Yeah, it's it's a whole different language. Like you said, I, I, I struggle to explain. It takes so long to explain to someone who doesn't understand procurement and IDIQs and all this, the language that we use that really does sound like foreign language. My, my mom always asked me how the company is doing. And I mostly just smile and say, it's doing great, mom, I'm working hard, you know, because it's just, and my mom is very smart. It's just too difficult to go through all the deals. It takes years to understand it, not that you can't short circuit that learning curve, but you're right. It, it's learning that procurement process, the nuances of it. It's learning how to evolve your bids and make them competitive. It's It's all of those things. And it, it takes so many different moving parts inside a company, you know, to, to, to write a credible proposal. And so many people have to be rowing the boat in the same direction. And there's so little that you control. I think that's the other thing I've, I've made peace with is if we sold widgets, I think we'd go out and there's multiple channels we could sell it. I could stand on the corner. I could go to, to hit up VP, you know, buying, buying executives of different companies and try to sell it. But that's not that that's not the way we sell services. We have to go through this procurement process that was created in the 70s to really buy equipment for the Pentagon, right? And so this procurement process is very antiquated. There's a reason behind it, in theory, fairness and equity. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a beast to, to wade through. And it takes a long time just to get from the start of an idea that you're going to bid something to bid it, to actually win it, to start the work. I mean, that literally these days, Lauren is probably we're, we're talking years now. We're no longer right. talking even six months. When I first started, it seemed like that was like a six-month process. Now it seems like it could be two to three years, depending on protests. Particularly with the protest issue. Yeah. Right. And so it's it's become this really crazy landscape. And, and of all the things I could say you have to be is incredibly persistent. Mm-hmm. You really have to be one stubborn, you know what, because you mm-hmm. just you just cannot quit because the key is just getting up the next day and continuing to grind. Because if you're not willing to do that, I mean, again, this business, this business is fantastic and really fun to you. I really love the, the mission work, the stuff that we do. I really believe in and I'm blown away about what some of my people do. But you have to be willing to just keep grinding and never quit because it'll grind you down if you let it. So you just have to be an incredibly stubborn person, which I happen to be. So <laughs> I, I think that's right. I mean, I think more so than anything, keeping your head down. I mean, that's the secret to, well, it's the secret to pretty much all success. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to teach my kids is, you know, yeah. you just put your head down and do it because you are going to get smacked down mm-hmm. over and over and over again in this world, in this, in particularly in GovCon, and people are going to tell you you can't do it. People are going to tell you, no, you're going to get, you know, you're, you're going to get smacked down. And only the people who keep saying, you say no, okay, watch me, you know, mm-hmm. let, let me show you how I can do it. Yeah, that I think that is the, the biggest secret to success 
maybe generally in life, but but certainly in GovCon. Yeah, I agree. And that, you know, gets to the things that motivate people. And I've you know, listened to some other episodes and I love hearing what other people say. And yeah, there's, you know, you can make good money in GovCon and, and that's certainly nice uh, as a nice byproduct if you do well and build a successful company. But I mean, for me and for us, and I, I say this for my team as well, because I'm pretty in tune with the motivates. So this is about proving to ourselves that we can execute on the thesis we have for a business, you know, proving it to the people that out there, maybe the old boss we didn't like or the person that we didn't enjoy work for, that we can do it without them. It's there's this prove it mentality chip on our shoulder of we're going to do this and we're going to do it our way. Yeah. And I think that's what gets me up more every day than, oh, my God, this contract's making X amount of dollars. I don't even think about that when I think about what are we going to do today to move this company forward? What do I need to do? What are what are my responsibilities today to help my team be successful? And, build, and how, how do we build something that's special and unique that we're really proud of and look around there and say, we all did this together. We all own this. Right. And that's yeah. really what gets me going and gets my my juices flowing. And that's that's what excites me. And that's why I can push through the times when I'm defeated or frustrated and why I can yep. be like, all right, it's time to stop feeling sorry for yourself. It's time to keep going. Yep. Well, and it's funny, you can tell the difference between the firms and, you know, you and I both work with lots of firms where mm-hmm. I think the driver is the the payday at the end. Mm-hmm. And I think there are plenty of firms where there's some mix between. And look, I mean, we're, we're all for-profit businesses. Right. For the most part. So there's no shame in in making profit. But if that's the driver, man, I don't think I would have been able to do this for that long. <laughs> like it would have I, I think we probably would have at that point been one of those grow it to sell it, you know, it, it let let's push for growth as, as quickly as possible. Firms and there are plenty of those out there, mm-hmm. but you can feel the difference in the mission-driven firms versus the the kind of profit-driven firms. And for me, and I think for you, and and most of the firms that we like working with, that mission-driven, the profit kind of comes once you do the right thing, in my mind. Yeah, I think I'm a big pro, I'm a big believer in process, right? Do the right, right things, whatever it is, whether if I'm working on my golf swing and business, do the right things. And then the, the right outcomes will follow. And I just feel like money is, you know, it's human nature. Everyone wants to make a good living and do all that. But money is a fleeting motivation. And I right. find that even with employees, everyone wants to do well. Everyone wants to be paid well for what they do. But everyone wants to feel like they're achieving something that they are invested in. And so money for me is is literally it's 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 on the list, but it's pretty far down the list in terms of what I think about in terms of what success looks like for us and for our company. You know, and, and, you know, people always say, oh, do you want to sell? Do, would you sell the company? And you never say never. But I said, we're we're loving what we're doing. Yep. We haven't accomplished nearly any, you know, nearly all of what we want to accomplish. There's a lot more to be accomplished. And so we're not even thinking about that. We're not even thinking about that. We have so many things that we think we can achieve that we're on the cusp of achieving that we're, we're not that that's a distraction. So that's just not even what we think about. And we want to work with and we seek to work with other companies where we do have to create the win win. It has to be positive relationship for everyone in all dimensions, including the economics of a deal. But it yeah. has to feel like there's equity in that deal. Everyone has to feel like this is fair and this deal needs to feel like I feel good about it. And I would want to do another deal with these folks. Absolutely. So, there are so many bad firms out there. I just don't want to work with them anymore. I just don't. Like, agreed. it's not worth it. And I would rather pass up some 
even really cool mission critical work for not working with the bad actors or the ones that, that you have to watch your back with, you know, for, for you guys at this point, and we've, we've worked together a couple of times now, I would do a deal on a handshake with you mm-hmm. right? because you've proven yourself. We've proven ourselves to you and we don't even have work yet together, but it's, it's been such a positive relationship. And at this point, certainly we, we don't do deals on handshakes because that's not good business. But if I couldn't feel comfortable doing a deal on a handshake, I'm not going to do business with that firm, even if I even if it it is growth effective for us. Yeah, no, I I know I agree. And, you know, what they always say, too, is, you know, while we we pay good businesses, paper all their deals and we all know team agreements and subcontracts and all that. But the, the paper, you know, if you have to rely on the paper to enforce the agreement. Yeah. And sometimes, by the way, you know, by the by, we do have to sometimes, particularly yeah. as small firms. But if you have to rely on the paper, you're probably not in the right deal. And and I agree with you. We've, what, what's been exciting is as we move along and as we've had firms sort of show us their colors, we're like, okay, good data, disappointing. Good, guess we're done now. And we've had some experiences, unfortunately, with some some large firms where we've been mistreated. And that's not a unique story in the small business market. So it's not worth even spending a lot of time on just that we have used that to say we, we're not going to do business with them. And what we've tried to do, what we continue to do is build an ecosystem of other small businesses, both in the Beltway and beyond now in yep. Tampa as well, but firms like you, you all. Out here in San Diego, where I currently reside after years in the belt, we're building this ecosystem and going back to the stable repeatedly saying, we want to do business with you guys at scale. So let's figure out a range of deals and markets that you're in or you want to be in. Let's say you want to get into something that we're doing and build some capacity. And we'd like to be in your market that we're not in. Well, we can also do some horse trading there. So you grow get some past performance there and we help each other out that way. Or we just go after deals where we both bring this great capability and we both want to go after, you know, agency customer X and we think we can do it together. And so that's been our model. And it's also just smart business because we don't have to go back over and over and start over in a new relationship. And then new businesses come along when Lauren says, hey, Randy, I think you should talk to Joe and Jane over at company ABC. I've worked with them. I trust them. And for me in this business, if I get that kind of, I trust these guys, that's all I need. I will take that call. But if it's a, someone I've never heard of or don't know anything yep. about, I'm yep. going to, I'm going to approach buyer beware very warily. So that network and the power of that network in terms of a vetting, being a vetting, you know, filter for you is really, really powerful. And that's, that's these days how we do a lot of vetting of additional businesses that we want to work with. Like for instance, our buddy, Carlos Salvat, who we both know, he's fantastic. Right. And he came to me through a good friend and I didn't even know you knew him. And my friend, a guy I've known for 20 years, like you got to talk to this guy. He's a sharp young guy yeah. who's growing his company. And I was like, done. And and from the second I met him, like this guy is awesome. I want to, I want to work with him. Yep. And, and I know you know him as well. So look at how many, that's like half a degree of separation, right? It's amazing. Well, and it's funny because we get, and I'm sure you do too, a whole lot of reach outs from LinkedIn, from, mm-hmm. you know, emails from this podcast. And it's, Hey, we'd like to do business with you. Uh, but you're right. It's we also get a whole lot of, hey, we see this contract that you have, be it UTEP or one of the other contracts. We how can we do business? How can we how can we get some of that? <laughs> no. <laughs> like, no. Right. But hey, you know, I know, and this this industry is really, really small, 
So, hey, I know this person and they seem to be doing some business over there. Can you make the introduction? But then the, the flip side of that is if you if you do the wrong thing to one firm, that's going to get out and be kind of part of, of your reputation. Yes. So if right, if Carlos and he won't because he's amazing. But mm-hmm. if Carlos does the wrong thing with you, I'm going to even if you don't tell me directly, mm-hmm. I'm going to know about that. I'm going to hear about that. And then there's the 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 kind of cascade. So it's that same thing of do the right thing, do it the right way, get it done, get the execution done and your reputation grows and you get more business. But you do the wrong thing once or twice and all of that credibility you built for years is gone. Absolutely. And it's funny because. You know, in the early years and you probably and you guys have had even more success than we have. And you guys have been a great role model for us. But in the early years, we had to make all the outgoing calls. Right. Can hey, can we help with this? Can we do that? And we never called and just put our cup out and said, put us on your contract. We can do this and working deals. And right. in the recent years, like you said, the in, inbound communication via LinkedIn, email, phone, you know, we can't sort through it all. It's like we want to do this. We want to do that. You know, can can we sell? I mean, you get a lot of this. I'm sure. Can I sell you this? Right. Which drives yes. me nuts. I know nothing yes. about your business, but I want to sell you something. And so that that's when, you know, you know, you are hopefully you're validating that you're going about it the right way. And I tell people who I've met for the first time, if we're going to do business, don't take my word for it. Don't take my word for it. If I tell you that we do things the right way. And integrity, when I give you my word, it's, it is my blood bond. If right. you don't believe me, go run your own traps. Talk to anyone you want. You can call anyone. If you want me to give you people, but don't, I don't even need to direct you people. Go find out for yourself. Go ask other people about Firebird, the way we operate, the way I operate, the way our team operates. Don't take my word for it. I'm asking you to believe me. Go check it out for yourself because we got nothing to hide. Yep. And that's just, that's part of the ethos of the company and is part of the way we we do business both externally with our partners and internally with our customers and what I expect from every single employee in the company. That's just who we are. And it's part of the thesis we had. We had this thesis about business that you can be good people. You can be ethical people. That doesn't, you don't have to be naive and be a mark, but you can do things the right way. And that is good business, right? And I yes. think sometimes people, this whole thing is you can't, those two things can't coexist. And we've proven at least at the size we're at that it that it can. And we're going to continue to operate that we're not going to change. I, I think we've proven at our size too. And again, sometimes it 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 becomes really hard or people expect different or people do different with us because we're at this size now. But I'm a big believer in nope. I I truly believe we don't have to turn into something different. We have to do things differently at this size, right? But we don't have to turn into something different at this size or any other size. What drove us here, what got us here, that set of values is still meaningful. And you can't get rid of that or you turn into something entirely different. And I mean, I guess a lot of firms do that, but I think you're right. You can, We can prove at your size, at our size, at much bigger, that you can still do things for the right reasons in the right way. And without looking at the immediate bottom line. Yeah. And you need to really, I believe that the the CEO and the senior team yes. needs to be the guardian of that culture yes. and those values. And, you know, you people come and go, people take different jobs. But if I'm looking at someone particularly for a senior role or I'm talking to the program manager who's looking at someone for an important role, 
I mean, that culture fit, yes, they have to have the skills. Sure. But I'll tell you, if they are close on the skills and they're off the chart on the kind of person and, and ethic that we want, I mean, that's yep. that's the direction we're going to go. And, and we have to protect that culture because even one bad apple in the barrel oh, over man. time can slowly you know, sour the entire brew. So it's really, really important to stay focused on that no matter how. Sometimes you look at someone like, wow, what a skill set. Dang. And you start to think, wow, what could we do with this person you know, helping us? But then you have to say something about the personality doesn't fit. And even when we interview people, if it's a senior role, they have to interview with the entire team. Even if yep. I like them, I'm not going to impose someone. The team has to say, yeah, we agree. Yep. This person feels like the fit. So that way we're flat that way. That way it's not, hey, got to have the person, but it's the wrong person for the team because they have to fit into this this ethos that we've created. Yep. One of the things that we do, and we haven't done it as much post, you know, with COVID, but we, for our senior level team members, we take them out to dinner or yeah. lunch yeah. and see how they treat the wait staff, mm-hmm. right? Because that tells you a whole lot. And when they have not done it well and we didn't listen to our gut, we're done. Every time it has come back and bitten us. So, all right, Randy, you and I could have, and I think we have <laughs> multiple times, had six hours of conversation here about kind of where we are in the business. And and we'll do a follow-up on this in a year about kind of your, your place at SOCOM and, and what you decided and how you did it. But this has been a great conversation. I think everyone listening can see why we're so excited to work with Firebird going forward and what a great firm you are. And hopefully they learned a bit about how to position yourself both in new markets, but also just in the GovCon market. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Lauren. You've been a great, you know, kind of mentor informally, just sharing ideas freely, sharing experiences, sharing relationships. And I guess that's another part of it is, is and we pass that forward. We do the same thing for other companies. And you're, you've been a great kind of role model and leader in how you built your business. So I admire that greatly and admire what you're, admire your success and just appreciate how generous you are with your time. So it's, it's a pleasure to come on here and share some of my experiences. And I just can't wait to continue building the relationship between the companies that's off to such a great start. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And thank everyone for listening. Thank you. Talk to you soon.